Section eight of the Pagan Madonna by Harold McGrath. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Don W. Jenkins. Chapter eight. Clay sat before a card table. He was playing Chinese Canfield. He looked up, but he neither rose nor dropped the half-spent deck of cards he held in his hand. The bronzed face, the hard agate blue of the eyes that met his own, the utter absence of visible agitation, took the wind out of Dennison's sails and left him all a shiver, like a sloop coming about on a fresh tack. He had made his entrance stormily enough, but now the hot words stuffed his throat to choking. Clay was thirty years older than his son. He was a finished master of sentimental emotions. He could keep all his thoughts out of his countenance when he so willed. But powerful as his will was, in this instance it failed to reach down into his heart, and that thumped against his ribs rather painfully. The boy! Dennison, aware that he stood close to the ridiculous, broke the spell and advanced. "'I've come for Miss Norman,' he said. Clay scrutinized the cards and shifted one. I found your note to her. I've a launch. I don't know what the game is, but I'm going to take Miss Norman back with me if I have to break in every door on board. Clay stood up. As he did so, Dodge the Texan appeared in the doorway to the dining salon. Dennison saw the blue barrel of a revolver. A gunman, eh? All right, let's see if he'll shoot, said the son, walking deliberately toward Dodge. No, Dodge. Clay called out as the Texan raised the revolver. "'You may go.' Dodge, a good deal astonished, backed out. Once more father and son stared at each other. "'Better call it off,' advised the son. "'You can't hold, Miss Norman, and I can make a serious charge. Bring her at once, or I'll go for her. And the Lord help the woodwork if I start.' But even as he uttered the threat, Dennison heard a sound behind. He turned, but not soon enough. In a second he was on the floor, three husky seamen mauling him. They had their hands full for a while, but in the end they conquered. "'What next, sir?' asked one of the sailors, breathing hard. "'Tie him up and lock him in cabin, too.' The first order was executed. After Dennison's arms and ankles were bound, the men stood him up. "'Are you really my father?' Clay returned to his cards and shuffled them for a new deal. "'Don't untie him.' He might walk through the partition. He will have the freedom of the deck when we are out of the delta. Dennison was thereupon carried to cabin two and deposited upon the stationary bed. He began to laugh. There was a sardonic note in his laughter like that which greets you when you recount some incredible tale. His old cabin. The men shook their heads as if confronted by something so unusual that it wasn't worth while to speculate upon it. The old man's son. They went out, locking the door. By this time Dennison's laughter had reached the level of shouting, but only he knew how near it was to tears, wrathful, murderous, miserable tears. He fought his bonds terrifically for a moment, then relaxed. For seven years he had been hugging the hope that when he and his father met, blood would tell, and that their differences would vanish in a strong handclasp. And here he lay, trussed hand and foot, in his old cabin, not a crack in that granite lump his father called a heart. A childish thought. Some day to take that twenty thousand, with a crude interest, ride up to the door, step inside, dump the silver on that old red Samarkand, and depart, forever. Where was she? 
this side of the passage or the other. "'Miss Norman!' he called. "'Yes,' came almost instantly from the cabin aft. "'This is Captain Dennison. I'm tied up and lying on the bed. Can you hear me distinctly?' "'Yes. Your father has made a prisoner of you? Of all the inhuman acts. You came in search of me?' "'Naturally. Have you those infernal beads?' "'No.' Dennison twisted about until he had his shoulders against the brass rail of the bedhead. "'What happened?' "'It was a trick. It was not to talk about you. He wanted the beads, and that made me furious.' "'Were you hurt in the struggle?' "'There wasn't any. I really don't know what possessed me. Perhaps I was a bit hypnotized. Perhaps I was curious. Perhaps I wanted some excitement.' On my word, I don't know just what happened. Anyhow, here I am, in a dinner-gown, bound for Hong Kong, so he says. He offered me ten thousand for the beads, and my freedom, if I would promise not to report his high-handedness. And I haven't uttered a sound. Heaven on earth! Why didn't you accept his offer? A moment of silence. In the first place, I haven't the beads. In the second place, I want to make him all the trouble I possibly can— now that he has me, he doesn't know what to do with me. Hoist by his own petard. Do you want the truth? Well, I'm not worried in the least. I feel as if I'd been invited to some splendiferous picnic. That's foolish, he remonstrated. Of course it is, but it's the sort of foolishness I've been aching for all my life. I knew something was going to happen. I broke my hand-mirror night before last. Two times seven years bad luck. Now he has me. I'll wager he's half frightened out of his wits. But what made you think of the yacht? We forced the door of your room, and I found the note. Has he told you what makes those infernal beads so precious? No, I can't figure that out. No more can I. Did he threaten you? Yes. Would I enter the launch peacefully, or would he have to carry me? I didn't want my gown spoiled. It's the only decent one I have. I'm not afraid. It isn't as though he were a stranger— being your father, he would never stoop to any indignity, but he'll find he has caught a tartar. I had an idea you'd find me. Well, I have, but you won't get to Hong Kong. The minute he liberates me, I'll sneak into the wireless room and bring the destroyers. I didn't notify the police from a bit of foolish sentiment. I didn't quite want you mixed up in the story. I had your things conveyed to the consulate. My story, which few men would believe. I've thought of that. Are you smoking? "'Smoking, with my hands tied behind my back? Not so you'd notice it.' "'I smell tobacco smoke. A good cigar, too.' "'Then someone is in the passage listening.' "'Silence.' Anthony Clay eyed his perfecto rather ruefully and tiptoed back to the salon, hoist by his own petard. He was beginning to wonder. Clay was a man who rarely regretted an act, but in the clear light of day he was beginning to have his doubts regarding this one. A mere feather on the wrong side of the scale, and the British destroyers would be atop of him like a flock of kites. Abduction. Cut down to bedrock. He had laid himself open to that. He ran his fingers through his cowlicks. But drat the woman! Why had she accepted the situation so docilely? Since midnight, not a sound out of her, not a wail, not a sob. Now he had her, he couldn't let her go. She was right there. There was one man in the crew Clay had begun to dislike intensely, and he had been maneuvering ever since Honolulu to find a legitimate excuse to give the man his papers. Something about the fellow suggested covert insolence. He had the air of a beachcomber who had unexpectedly fallen into a soft berth, and it had gone to his head. 
He had been standing watch at the ladder-head, and against positive orders he had permitted a visitor to pass him. To Clay this was the handle he had been hunting for. He summoned the man. "'Get your duffel,' said Clay. "'What's that, sir?' "'Get your stuff. You're through. You had positive orders, and you let a man by.' "'But his uniform fussed me, sir. I didn't know just how to act.' "'Get your stuff. Mr. Cleve will give you your pay. My orders are absolute. Off with you.' The sailor sullenly obeyed. He found the first officer alone in the chart-house. "'The boss has sent me for my pay, Mr. Cleve. I'm fired.' Flint grinned amiably. "'Fired. Well, well,' said Cleve. "'That's certainly tough luck, all this way from home. I'll have to pay you in Federal Reserve bills. The old man has the gold.' "'Federal Reserve it is. Forty-six dollars in Uncle Samuel's.' The first officer solemnly counted out the sum and laid it on the palm of the discharged man. "'Tough world.' "'Oh, I'm not worrying. I'll bet you this forty-six against ten that I've another job before midnight.' Mr. Cleve grinned. Always looking for sure thing bets. Better hail that bum boat with the vegetables to row you into town. The old man'll dump you over by hand if he finds you here between now and sundown. I'll try that launch there. Tell the lad his fare ain't going back to Shanghai. Of course it makes it a bit inconvenient, packing and unpacking, but I guess I can live through it. But what about the woman? Cleve plucked his chin. Messes up the show a bit. Pippin, though. I like em when they walk straight and look straight like this one. Notice her hair? You never tamed that sort beyond parlor manners. But I don't like her on board here, or the young fellow either. Don't know him, but he's likely to bust the yacht wide open if he gets loose. Well, so long, Mary. Know what my first move will be? A bottle somewhere. But mind your step. Don't monkey with the stuff beyond normal. You know what I mean. Sure. Only a peg or two after all this psalm singing. I know, Flint. But this game is no joke. You know what happened in town? Morrissey was near croaked. Flint's face lost some of its gaiety. Oh, I know how to handle the stuff. See you later. Clay decided to see what the girl's temper was, so he entered the passage on the full soles of his shoes. He knocked on her door. Miss Norman? Well? That was a good sign. She was ready to talk. I have come to repeat that offer. Mr. Clay... I have nothing to say so long as the key is on the wrong side of the door. Clay heard a chuckle from cabin two. Very well, he said. Remember, I offered you liberty conditionally. If you suffer inconveniences after tonight, you will have only yourself to thank. Have you calculated that some day you will have to let me go? Yes, I have calculated on that. And that I shall go to the nearest authorities and report this action. If you will think a moment, said Clay, his tone monotonously level, you will dismiss that plan for two reasons. First, that no one will believe you. Second, that no one will want to believe you. That's as near as I care to put it. Your imagination will grasp it. Instantly, cried the girl hotly. I knew you to be cold and hard, but I did not believe you were a scoundrel, having known your son. I have no son. Oh, yes, you have. I disowned him. He is absolutely nothing to me. I do not believe that, came back through the cabin door. Nevertheless, it is the truth. The queer part is, I've tried to resurrect the father instinct and can't. I've tried to go round the wall, over it. I might just as well try to climb the upper Himalayas. In cabin, too, the sun stared at the white ceiling. 
It seemed to him that all his vitals had been wrenched out of him, leaving him hollow, empty. He knew his father's voice. It rang with truth. "'I offer you ten thousand. "'The key is still on the outside. "'I'm afraid to trust you.' "'We understand each other perfectly,' said Jane, ironically. The sun smiled. The sense of emptiness vanished, and there came into his blood a warmth as sweet as it was strong. Jane Norman, angel of mercy. He heard his father speaking again. "'Since you will have it so, you will go to Hong Kong?' "'To Patagonia, if you wish.' You cannot scare me by threatening me with travel on a private yacht. I had the beads, it is true, but at this moment I haven't the slightest idea where they are, and if I had I should not tell you. I refuse to buy my liberty. You will have to give it to me without conditions. I'm sorry I haven't anything on board in shape of women's clothes, but I'll send for your stuff if you wish. That is the single consideration you have shown me. My belongings are at the American consulate, and I should be glad to have them. You will find paper and ink in the escritoire. Write me an order, and I promise to attend to the matter personally. And search through everything at your leisure? Clay blushed, and he heard his son chuckle again. He had certainly caught a tartar, possibly two. With a twisted smile he recalled the old yarn of the hunter who caught the bear by the tail, willing to let go and daring not. Still I agree, continued the girl. I want my own familiar things, if I must take this forced voyage. "'But mark me, Mr. Clay, you will pay some day. I'm not the clinging kind, and I shall fight you tooth and nail from the first hour of my freedom. I am not without friends.' "'Never in this world,' came resonantly from cabin two. Clay longed to get away. There was a rumbling and a threatening inside of him that needed space. Gargantuan laughter. Not the clinging kind, this girl. And the boy, walking straight at Dodge's villainous revolver, why, he would need the whole crew behind him when he liberated these two. But he knew that the laughter striving for articulation was not the kind heard in Elysian fields. End of chapter 8 Read by Don W. Jenkins Rancho San Diego, California Shaggybark.blogspot.com